Hello, the past and the curious listeners. I'm Nate Dufort. I'm Brian Holden. And I'm Meredith Stepien. And we're just some of the team behind the show, Reach, a space podcast for kids. Built for kids and based on questions from kids around the world, Reach features fun interviews with leading scientific experts, astronauts, and more. Are you curious about what's happening with the Mars Perseverance rover? What about NASA's Artemis program that'll return humans to the moon? We have the answers from experts at space agencies around the globe in segments made for teen and tween audiences or anyone with an interest in space. We also have a lot of fun with activities and experiments that you can do at home. As well as conversations with interstellar objects as played by some very familiar voices. So, if you ever wanted to talk to the sun... Uh, my favorite thing about being the sun, um, I guess it's that I'm the center of everything. <laughs> I do like the attention. The moon. Oh, you may have heard a lyric from a children's song suggesting that a cow jumped over the moon. I feel like I would have noticed that. A black hole. Here's a fun word. Spaghettification. A favorite planet. Uranus. Uranus. What well, rhymes with Uranus? Or a former planet. All is fair in love and planet reclassification. No hard feelings. Reach is the place. Sound like fun? Then make sure you subscribe to Reach, a space podcast for kids on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? It's episode 64. Here we are again, friends. My name is Mick Sullivan. Your name is whatever your name is. And this is episode 64, which is about lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of birds. And a few people who made an avian impact. Primarily, John James Audubon and Eugene Schieflin. But we'll also hear about a lonely bird named Martha and a whole lot more. I'm glad you've tuned in. I appreciate it, as always. It's a pleasure to create this show for you. So, uh, I want to thank my friends Greg and Abigail Maupin. They, they're popular guests on the show. They're great, they're great voices. So, they're reading the first story, which I wrote. Uh, and then you'll hear me again. Ha-ha. Uh, but I do want to give you a warning. The first little bit of the next story, the first story, is might start off kind of spooky i promise you it's not spooky the 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 music is kind of menacing and there's a couple other things but i'm telling you just hang with me it is not spooky at all as the afternoon skies over columbus ohio mysteriously darkened a thunderous pounding noise assaulted the eardrums of the frightened citizens it was hard to place the sound the otherworldly rumble. To some, it was like the thunder of an impossibly massive stampeding herd of horses. To others, like the constant rush of the most powerful waterfall imaginable. But the sound came not from the ground, nor was it a result of the flowing waters of the nearby and relatively calm Scioto River. It came from the skies. Every inch of space above them was filled with a mass of dark movement, turning twisting, tangled, but always moving in the same direction. There was no end to the shadowy sky stream in sight. As the sun disappeared completely behind the noisy cloud, children screamed and cowered from the hammering, pulsating darkness. Parents tripped over themselves, trying to help their frightened children. Pets and farm animals alike panicked, running in whichever direction seemed safest. But the tumultuous overcast was all-encompassing. At least for a couple of hours. What was it? Birds. Birds? 
Yep, birds. Covering the sky for hours? More birds than you can imagine. I don't know. I can imagine an awful lot of birds. Try imagining one at a time. Oh. Oh. That is a lot. To the amazement and concern of many, this flock of feathered flyers temporarily blotted out the Columbus, Ohio sky in 1855. Once upon a time, millions upon millions, probably billions, of these passenger pigeons lived on the American continent, soaring through the skies from coast to coast. Some flocks were larger than others, though, and this Ohio flock was no ordinary flock. It was exceedingly large. Similar gargantuan gaggles were well documented. Native Americans made record of flocks of passenger pigeons so numerous that if you stood in one spot, they would fill the sky for the better part of a day. Some flocks decided to pack themselves in tightly for a rest upon the branches of some poor, unsuspecting tree. Often those trees would collapse under the tremendous weight of so many birds. Understand. They were not large birds, so try to imagine... I'm trying. ...how many it might take to weigh a couple of tree-toppling tons. Unfazed by the fallen timber, off the flock would fly to fell another tree, eat their fill, and cover the skies in darkness for people below. People who probably wished they'd packed a parasol for protection from all the plummeting passenger pigeon poop. Oh, positively. But then, just like that, they were gone. Like the flock flew away? Well, yes, in those instances, but I mean, a few decades later, they were gone-gone. Like, none. It's so unusual to be able to confidently point to the exact moment when a species became extinct. But here's the thing. A mere 59 years later, in 1914, the very last passenger pigeon in the world died. It was September 1st, 1914, and her name was Martha. As it so happened, she had lived the last years of her life just 100 miles from Columbus, Ohio, at the Cincinnati Zoo. Not long before, her species had been the most abundant bird in North America, if not the world. And when she died, there were none. For the most part, passenger pigeons were hunted to extinction. Other factors, like habitat destruction and competition with other species for food and resources, played a role in their demise, too. Still, it would be unfathomable to a person of the 1800s to learn that today these birds don't exist at all. Just because you will never see a passenger pigeon flying the skies doesn't mean there aren't billions of other birds beating their wings above us all. Many are descendants of birds that shared the skies over the American continent with passenger pigeons for thousands of years. And some of them are newcomers. The European starling is a newcomer. And what a rise to the top it's been. Around the time the passenger pigeon was disappearing, the starling was just getting started taking over American shores. Along with birds like the robin and junco, the European starling is one of the most plentiful birds in North America today. Experts estimate that there are 200 million on the North American continent now. Unfortunately, all 200 million of those European starlings are not well-liked. I hate to talk bad about any birdie. Nope. Stop. And it's not like they are really at fault in the situation. They didn't ask to be brought overseas. They're innocent creatures living their lives in a place they hadn't planned to be. Yes. Listen, if you're a starling who happens to be listening right now, you do you, buddy. Don't let anyone dim your shine. 
But, but if you're anyone else with a bit of bird awareness, you probably would be okay with a little dimmer shine from the starlings in your neighborhood. The fairest way to put it would be to say that starlings are pests. And there are an awful lot of them being pesty and testy. From the easty to the... No. Westy. What did I just say? Sorry. Not a peep. <sighs> starlings. Farmers don't like them. Other birds don't like them. City folk don't much care for them either. They're aggressive, they steal nests and destroy eggs, they eat crops, and they cover large areas in poop. They do eat a lot of bugs, so if you don't like bugs, that's cool. Fair enough. But most people would prefer for them not to be around, or at least not be around in such great numbers. In a similar sense to the momentous death of Martha, the last passenger pigeon, it's also unusual that we can pinpoint the exact beginning of a species arriving in a new land. In the case of starlings in America, it's all the fault of one man, Eugene Schieflin. Way, Way to go, go Eugene. Eugene! Eugene was a pharmacist and drug manufacturer in New York City in the late 1800s. He came from a wealthy family and indulged himself very deeply in his interests. Tops on his list of things to bore people with at parties was ornithology. Ah, uh, yes, the study of Christmas tree ornaments. No, birds. Birds. The study of birds. There's another tale about Eugene that people like to tell. Some say he liked Shakespeare as much as birds. Those same people say that he merged those two loves into one fanatical goal. They'll tell you that Eugene wanted to find every single mention of a bird in Shakespeare's plays. He then wanted to capture a handful of each species Shakespeare specified. And if they did not exist already in America, he wanted to introduce these barred birds to American shores by releasing them to the wild. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our starlings. No. But in ourselves, no? It's a great story, but there's not a lot of evidence that Shakespeare was the actual inspiration. Eugene was a member of the American Acclimatization Society, a group which sought to introduce the helpful, beneficial, and impressive plants and animals of other lands to America. Throughout the ages, introducing non-native flora and fauna, or plants and animals new to an area, has had mixed results. Sometimes it has gone well, sometimes not so well. Horses were not originally found in many parts of the world, but today they are loved the world over. Potatoes and tomatoes were originally found in South America, but thanks to being moved by people who fell in love with their deliciousness, both plants made their way to the soil, mouths, and hearts of nearly everyone in the world. Who knows? Without people taking those tomatoes to Europe, we might not be enjoying pizza today. But not all plant and animal transplants are so fortuitous. Plants like kudzu, that creatures like zebra mussels are now major problems for the areas to which they were introduced. These are called invasive species because as they grow and thrive, they cause damage to the environment and often harm other naturally occurring species. Eugene probably didn't know which way his little starling experiment was going to go. Whether he just wanted to spread the Shakespeare love or just admired starlings is of little matter. What matters is that in 1890, he put on a little show of his own. Supported by his friends in the Acclimatization Society, he arrived in New York City's Central Park with bird cages filled with 60 starlings, fresh off a boat from England. 
To a modest amount of fanfare, the birds were released, flapping their wings in the big city air for the first time. No one could have imagined what would happen, but it was celebrated just the same. Way, Way to, to go, go Eugene! Eugene bid adieu to the birds, hoping they'd breed and begin to make a comfortable American home for themselves. But he was impatient. When he noticed little growth in the population after the elapsed time of one single year, he again went to Central Park, this time with another 40 starlings imported from overseas. He released those to similar celebration. Way, Way to, to go, go Eugene. Eugene! As he and everyone else went on with their lives, those starlings did too, except at a much faster pace than everyone, everything, and every birdie else around them. No. Nothing dulled their starling shine, and they did them. Soon the population exploded until their numbers rivaled the numbers that passenger pigeons had once enjoyed. Today, starlings are practically everywhere you look. So from that perspective, maybe we can call Eugene's experiment a success. But when you consider their great number have hurt the population of other native birds, it's easy to see why most people would consider it a failure. Every single one of the nearly 200 million starlings living in North America today descended directly from those 100 birds that Eugene originally released in Central Park in 1890 and 1891. And people have cursed him ever since. Way, Way to, to go, go Eugene. Eugene. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the Chart Topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages, teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. It's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and uh, it's a very appropriate theme from Massachusetts Max. Take it away, Max. Hi, my name is Max, and I live in Quincy, Massachusetts, and I'm going to tell you about the Winged Hussars. The Winged Hussars were the medieval cavalry of Poland. They are around from 1503 to 1776. They were called the Winged Hussars because they wore large wings as a part of their armor, and when they banged together, it sounded like lightning and scare the enemy horses and intimidate the enemy. 
The wings were made from the feathers of raptors and the angel-like frame was attached to the armor or saddle. Whoa, that was super awesome. I kind of want to have heard that, but also it sounds really scary and I probably wouldn't want to. It's probably bad news if you heard it. Uh, Max, that was really great. Thank you. I also, I, I knew a Max who played banjo uh, from Massachusetts too. I'm guessing that's not you. You don't sound like him. But thank you for your submission. And if you have, uh, you have 30 seconds, all you have to do is follow the instructions on our website and send it our way. It's very easy. You just use a phone app, the voice recorder, and email it. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Wait, what? Quiz time? Again? Okay, well, here we go. Question number one. Charlie Parker was one of the most influential jazz musicians in history. What was the saxophonist's nickname? Bird. They called him Bird. And he was a leading figure in the style of jazz called bebop, which was fast and required incredible technique. Musicians today still learn to play solos that he improvised or made up on the spot. Question number two. Claudia Alta Johnson was the first lady of the United States from 1963 to 1969. Her nickname was Lady What? <clears throat> Bird. They called her Ladybird. And when her husband, Lyndon Baines Johnson, wanted to first run for politics, it was Ladybird who bankrolled his campaign costs. When LBJ became president, she was the first first lady to have her own press secretary to go on a solo political tour, and there was even a congressional bill passed to beautify streets, highways, and roads in America that she championed, and it was known as Ladybird's Bill. Question number three. According to the hit song in 1964, recorded by a band known as the Trashmen, what is the word? <clears throat> bird. Bird is the word. Bird, bird, bird. The bird is a word. Bird, bird, bird. The bird is a word. Everybody knows the bird is the word. Sorry about that, y'all. It's a doozy of an earworm. And if you want to annoy anyone else with it, it's called Surfing Bird. And it's pretty wild. John James Audubon was totally obsessed with birds. If you ask his family, they'd probably say maybe he took his ornithological obsession a little too far. If you could ask him, he might say he didn't take it far enough. But if you ask a modern day fellow fan of feathered fowl, they'd probably say what he did for the bird world was just right. Unlike Goldilocks and the Three Bears, perhaps all three of these answers can be correct in a way. It just depends on whose point of view you consider. John James Audubon was born in Haiti, 
where his French father owned a sugarcane plantation and depended on the labor of enslaved men and women to grow his fortune. There is dispute about who John's mother was. There is also debate about the color of his skin. There's a good chance that his mother had African ancestry, but no one is completely sure. What is certain is that she died while he was young, and when the enslaved people of the island revolted against their captors in the Haitian Revolution, his father fled. The elder Mr. Audubon had been a French naval captain and had fought alongside the Americans during the American Revolution, so he knew America pretty well. When he sold his sugarcane plantation, he purchased a mill in Pennsylvania, but he and his family went to live across the ocean in France. Once there, another revolution, the French Revolution, disrupted John James Audubon's youth yet again. Unlike many of the other French people, though, everyone in his life kept their heads attached to their bodies. They moved away from the turmoil, and living in the countryside was actually quite picturesque. The boy would spend every available minute of every available day outside. Riding horses, fencing, and hiking were among his favorite activities, and he fell deeply in love with nature and found an overwhelming appreciation for birds. Birds! He was fascinated by their habits, their life cycles, and the many ways that they looked. The smaller the detail, the more fascinating it was to him. By the time he was 18, a new leader had settled into power in France, Napoleon Bonaparte. And Napoleon really liked to fight wars. And to do this, he needed lots of soldiers. Those soldiers were typically young men. And because of all the fights he fought, those young men typically didn't live to be old men, if you know what I mean. Audubon's dad didn't want this fate to befall his son John, so he snuck him out of the country to avoid conscription into Napoleon's army. John James Audubon wound up at the mill his father had bought in Pennsylvania. His father thought the young man might be able to make a nice, stable life for himself running the farm and the mill, as well as making some money with the lead that had been recently discovered there. Was he right? He was worse than right. He was wrong. Audubon pretty much tanked the place. He really had no interest in it. He was much more concerned with his growing passion for birds. <laughs> the American countryside, he discovered, was flush with amazing birds. Birds! 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 Many of which he had never seen overseas in France. So he began refining his artistic eye and spent some time drawing their details. Beyond the birds, his only real other interest was a neighbor named Lucy Bakewell. Eventually, they would be married, and luckily for John, she had the business sense that he lacked. They moved to Kentucky and operated a general store, and Audubon improved his artistic abilities while earning money as a portrait painter. It was around this time that he had an idea. What you thinking about, Johnny Jim? Birds. <sighs> What's new? There's just so many birds. Yep. A lot of birds out there. I just want to see all the birds. Well, you know, we've got kids now, and it's a lot of work raising them. Yeah, I know, but birds. But birds indeed. I think I want to paint every bird in America. Say what now? How are, how are you going to do that? Like every single bird? No, like one of every species. How many is that? 
I don't know. I don't think any birdie knows. But I intend to find out. Did you just say any birdie? What? No, you're hearing things. Look, I gotta go look at birds. For days, weeks, even months at a time, John James Audubon would disappear into the woods to gander at geese, observe orioles, spy on sandpipers, and wonder about warblers. Woohoo, birds! He watched their movements and their behaviors, and then he sat down to paint them. But here's the thing. He couldn't paint them from memory, and they tended to dash and dart around in the wild. So Audubon would, um, shoot them. Yeah. Not a pleasant thought, but it gets worse. Next, he'd stuff wires into them and pose the birds in lifelike poses. Ooh. Then he'd pull out his watercolors and start painting. Once that was done, he'd usually eat them. Ew. I know, I know. He was out in the wild, though. There was not really any other food to eat. You know, waste not, whatnot, he probably figured. History isn't always pretty. Actually, it's rarely pretty. However, nearly everyone would agree that his paintings were pretty. Audubon's paintings of these birds were revolutionary. Many are amazed to learn that they were done mostly in watercolor paints. They are vibrant and bold in contrast and color. He wasn't the first to try to document America's birds, but other attempts were very scientific and were largely straightforward drawings of birds in profile. There wasn't a lot of imagination, and many would argue that there didn't need to be. Audubon, however, painted his birds in flight, fighting snakes, feeding their young. The actions he depicted were actually closer to nature photographs that wouldn't come around until the 1900s. And the birds in his paintings had personality. It was remarkable. Warblers looked like warblers. Turkeys looked like turkeys. Schnozberries tasted like schnoz... Strike that. I meant pigeons tasted like... No, pigeons looked like pigeons. Well, they tasted like them too. Audubon's obsession grew, and it kept him away from home for longer and longer periods of time. He was home so rarely, his kids probably just thought of him as the bird man who showed up occasionally to say things like, Happy birthday! Did you just say birthday? What? No, no, you're hearing things. Look, I gotta go look at birds. After 14 years of work, and at the age of 41, Audubon felt like he was finished with his master work. Every bird species that he could find, life-size, on paper. His plan, once he painted every one of these species of birds, was to publish it in a full-color book. Now, in the 1800s, this was a very, very difficult thing to do. There was no one in America willing to take the risk on such a project. So yet again, he said goodbye to his family and went to England in search of a way to publish his book. It's about birds. Traveling with his full-size drawings, he displayed many of them in art galleries, and he became a celebrity of sorts by following in the footsteps of Benjamin Franklin when he was in Europe. Like Franklin had done, Audubon stood out by dressing in his buckskins and a coonskin cap, looking like someone fresh off of the frontier trails. It was a smash, and so were his wildly popular pictures. You're saying you painted every birdie in America? Every birdie? In life-size? Yep. How did you do it? Mostly by ignoring my wife and kids. Yeah, where are they right now? Uh, I think they're in Louisiana. Okay. Luckily, all of this would lead to a deal to publish the book, but it still wasn't easy. In today's money, it cost the equivalent of $2 million to get the book, which was broken into serialized volumes, 
printed for interested people. Were there a lot of interested people? Yeah, maybe. Were there many interested people who could also afford a copy of the book? Absolutely not. After 14 years of work, painting, and intense bird focus, Birds. he sold around 200 copies. Birds. That doesn't sound like many because, well, it's not very many. But when you consider that each purchaser paid the equivalent of $90,000 for the book, well, it sounds a lot better. Universities, institutions, and quite literally kings and queens were the primary buyers. As time went on, though, smaller, less expensive versions became available for non-millionaires. Today, his work is available for anyone to see online. In all, there are 435 paintings depicting around 500 different bird species. He didn't get every species, but he got close. He did miss a few. Many people today consider his bird images to be some of the best ever, and certainly the most revolutionary. Also, an entire national organization bearing his name, the Audubon Society, is dedicated to preserving and protecting America's birds. It might seem a bit ironic to name the organization for someone who shot so many birds himself, but over his lifetime, he came to realize that overhunting was problematic for preserving the natural diversity of the continent. Plus, his work raised awareness about America's natural diversity more than anyone else's at the time. In recent years, the Audubon Society has had to grapple with the fact that John James Audubon enslaved people when he lived in Kentucky. When his finances got tight, he sold those people, likely splitting up family units. It was a horrible fate many had to endure. Audubon also left a written account of getting help in the wilderness from an enslaved family who had escaped from the plantation on which they were held. He claimed that despite their assistance, he returned them to their enslavers. Unfortunately, this is not unusual for many people of the time period. It doesn't make it any better, though. It brings up an interesting question that people struggle with every day. Do we recognize the accomplishments of questionable individuals despite their heinous acts? Do we reject what they accomplished on the grounds of who they hurt in order to do so? Or do we simply judge someone's creations on their individual merits, independent of who made them and under what circumstances? Maybe this is an easier way to put it. Is it okay to appreciate someone's work even if they did bad things to people? Or do we decide that we can't really like their work because of the bad things that they did to people? Or is it possible to completely separate a person's work from who they were as a person? I don't know the answer, but it's a good question to ask. If nothing else, these bird stories we heard today can be a simple reminder for all of us to spend some time quietly observing the natural world around us. There's something rewarding about appreciating the lives being lived in the skies and on the ground as we go about our own. You might not get obsessed, but it's nice to tune in for a little bit. Thanks for listening to episode 64. Uh, I wanted to point out some of the music that I put together for this uh, for this episode. There are two tunes you'll hear in the background that I felt very proud of because they were very appropriate. One is a fiddle tune called Birdie, which I actually use a lot, but it was called Birdie, so I couldn't not use it. 
And then this is me playing mandolin. That's also me playing guitar in the background. But this is a Charlie Parker tune. That's Bird Parker, Charlie Bird Parker, doing a tune that he wrote uh, called Yardbird Suite. So, you know, I just couldn't resist. That's how deep we go here on The Past and the Curious. Anyway, thanks for listening to this, and thanks to these new Patreon sponsors. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the support. Things are not easy these days, uh, and it means a whole lot to know that that what we're doing matters to you uh, and your family. So um, thank you, and let's get started with those people. Xavier and Henry, thank you again. Xavier and Henry, it's always great to hear from you, and I am so grateful for your generosity. Nori Goggins, hello to you, and thank you. Elliot, Elliot Swabby, thank you. And Poe in Switzerland, howdy Poe. Great to hear from you a second time. Uh, I also need to give a shout out to Beck Kogan. Howdy do, Beck. Isaac and Jessica, thanks to you as well. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, also, Adrian out there, who I understand really liked the Marie Curie episode, which was a really fun one to put together, so I'm glad you dug that. Um, let's see. Oh, Isaac, I forgot to mention that you were from the Quad Cities, Isaac. What's up in the Quad Cities? Uh, so you got double shout-outs, Isaac. Way to go. Um, Liam Singletary, hello to you as well, and thank you. And looks like last but not least, I need to say hello to a pair of brothers, Miles and Leo. And I believe Miles has a birthday right around the corner. So, Miles, I hope you have a great birthday. Thank you for listening. Consider this an early birthday present. Happy birthday from the past and the curious. Anyone else who has a birthday? Happy birthday to you, too. We all have birthdays, though, really. It's just a matter of when they are. Anyway, my name is Mick Sullivan. Thank you, everyone. If you want to support the show, you can leave reviews you can tell people with your mouths remember that's what they're for your mouth is for telling people about the past and the curious that's why you have it so use it thanks a lot my name is mick sullivan talk to you next month <laughs>